Kids can be dismissed at this time. Man. Um, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 20 is where we're picking up with our study. And as you turn there, um, once you find your place, just, uh, I'm going to ask you to just kind of close your eyes for a moment and just kind of tune everything else out and just let everything get kind of still and quiet. And uh, what I want us to do is to remember that when we come to this place, we come because we want to hear from God. And we open his word, and he speaks to us. So in this moment, whatever it is that's running around in your mind, your busyness, maybe your obligations that you have, it's a to-do list, um, maybe it's some kind of circumstance in your life that just kind of overwhelms your thinking, you, you lie awake at night thinking about these things, whatever that is, grab a hold of that thought, lay it aside this morning, and just say, Lord, in the midst of Everything that troubles my mind, I want to hear from you this morning. That's why I'm here. All right, with that thought and that mentality, let's approach God's word. We have been journeying through the book of Exodus. And we found, as we've gone through there, that it really begins with God remembering his promises. He made these promises to Abraham, to Abraham's children. He was faithful to all of those. And then we find there in the beginning of Exodus that God reminds Moses, reminds the people that he plans to be faithful to what he promised. And he even told Abraham, hey, your, your descendants are going to be slaves in a foreign land for over 400 years, but I'm going to remember this promise and I'm going to bring them out of that, and I'm going to deliver them into the land that I promised you that I was going to give to them. And so God reminds Moses and the people of that there at the beginning of the book of Exodus, and we see that he remembers his promises. We see Moses being born in a miraculous way, being protected by God. We see God call Moses after he ends up in the desert because of some mistakes that he makes. God hasn't given up on him. He shows up in a miraculous way, calls Moses to be his spokesman to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. So Moses does this. He goes and he confronts Pharaoh and he demands the freedom of God's people, the Hebrew people. Pharaoh hardened his heart uh, and then God sometimes hardened Pharaoh's heart. There were the ten plagues that we saw, which were all an attack on the false Egyptian gods to show that God, Yahweh, was the one true God. Not only to demonstrate that to the Egyptians, but also to demonstrate that to the Israelites. We see them after Pharaoh releases them. They miraculously cross the Red Sea when it looked like they were trapped. And they walk across and they're free people on the other side. God takes them to this place called Meribah where the waters were bitter and they complained about that. And God was gracious, told Moses, what to do, and he made the waters sweet. From there, he took them to a place of, you know, oasis, if you will, a place called Rephidim. And Rephidim was a place with palm trees and shade and springs of living water there that they could drink from. And then we saw the first fight that they had with their enemies, the Amalekites, and God supernaturally there gives them victory. God then brings them to Mount Sinai once again. I say once again because if you remember when God originally called Moses, he told them, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to see this through. And, and just as a witness to that, when you deliver the people from Israel, you will bring them back to this same place and worship me on this mountain. And that's where they are. 
God's been faithful to Moses. He's been faithful to do exactly what he told him they were going to do. I'm going to bring all of you back to this mountain. Here they are at Mount Sinai, and there is the giving of the ten words. And now remember, in, in chapter 19, there was this thunder and this lightning and these earthquakes because God's presence was there. And then it says, and God said, and God then began to speak out loud to all the people these ten words. Now, that's interesting because in all of the rest of Scripture, really before that and after that, you really don't see God talking audibly to a large group of people. But the ancient rabbis actually say that they believe that when God spoke to his people at Mount Sinai, that it was so forceful and so loud that every person on the face of the earth heard it. That it went out like 70 tongues of fire throughout the world, and every living thing on the face of the planet heard God say, Anachim, Yahweh, Elohim, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt. And then the ten words ensued from there. It was a powerful moment. Now, last week, if you remember, we covered the last of those ten words, which was, do not covet. And I love what one rabbi said about this. He said that the last word is really not a command at all. It's a reward for keeping the others. And I like that perspective, even though obviously it is one of the commands. It's even presented in a command form. But I I think the mentality of what he's approaching there is that when you get these other nine right, the tenth one takes care of itself. In other words, when you've put God in the right place and you've put other people in their right place, you're not going to want someone else's life. You're going to be content with your life. And also that we understand these 10 words not as this list to be kept. In other words, like this spiritual list that you go and you you check off that I've been these things. It's a circular way of living. Maybe a better word is cyclical way of living. As you work your way down through the 10 words, you come to this point of, of being at peace at some point in your life. Well, then as you go to this deeper level of understanding and maybe contentment, then there, something else shows itself, and it brings you back to the first one, which is, is God really first and foremost in your life? Is there another God that needs to be confronted? And then you begin to walk through that again. So it's always this cyclical idea of bringing us into this deeper understanding of who God is, this deeper relationship with God, and a deeper relationship with humanity or our community as a body of believers as well. And and maybe even cyclical is not even the best way. If you think about it, it's more like a DNA strand. It's what we would call like a double helix. You've you've seen that picture. It's almost like a circular staircase that goes around. So, So these words are like that. When you come back to the first one, it's not on the same plane that you were before. In other words, you've either grown deeper or further away, and there's something else you have to address, but we're never in the same place. Hopefully, we are growing, and we're coming to this deeper reality of who God is, and as we transform uh, our being, our understanding of who God is, so we go into this deeper understanding of who He is, which brings us into a deeper relationship with His law. And as we come to our passage this week, it almost seems to create a bookend with the end of chapter 19. The reason I say that is before God ever speaks the 10 words, there's this lightning, there's this thunder, there's this dark cloud that covers the mountain, there are these earthquakes, and then we have that same thing in our passage today. So if you'll follow along with me, let's look at verse 18, and we're going to look at those few verses there that lead to the conclusion of this event on Mount Sinai. It says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, 
but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now, this right here has a lot of application to it. First of all, I want you to get a visual imagery of what's happening here. The people are there, and at the beginning of God speaking these words, there is all these events that are taking place. Now, again, that doesn't stop. There's not two separate events. So he's not saying that at the end of God speaking, there was thunder and lightning and earthquakes again. He's reminding you this has been happening the whole time. Like all of this is happening because God's presence is right there. And because God's presence is right there, there is just, just this awe, this intensity that is being experienced and felt by everyone there. Not only are they hearing the audible voice of God, they are feeling the very presence of God through all of these physical demonstrations of God's presence. Okay? So this is all happening and they are standing afar off and they are intimidated by this, even to the point of, of growing in fear because of this. And now what happens is, if you remember in 19, God told them, don't get too close to the mountain. Now it seems like there's no problem with that. They're not going to get close to the mountain. Matter of fact, they're going to withdraw as far away as they possibly can. But what our passage today tells us is that after the experience of hearing God speak, they didn't want to get any closer. In fact, they didn't even want to hear God speak again. They wanted God to speak to Moses, and then Moses come and tell them what God said. Now, I want you to understand really what they are saying and experiencing. Once they've seen God in all of his power, in all of his awe, they withdraw and they say, Moses, you go in there and talk to him and you just tell us what he said. Don't ever let him speak to us directly again. It's too intimidating. It creates too much fear in us. Now, in chapter 19, we're also reminded that Moses being the mediator between God and the people was not the people's idea. It was originally God's idea. Turn to uh, Exodus 19. Look at verse 9. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. So this is early on before the ten words are being spoken. And God says, I want the people to hear me speaking to you in this dark cloud so that they will believe you forever. Believe him. Why? Because he's going to be the mediator. He's going to be the one who speaks for God to the people. And they, he, God wants the people to know that, yes, Moses is hearing directly from God. And his word is to be trusted because he's going to relay the things that God says to him to the people. But Moses also serves as a mediator from the other direction. Uh, there are times we're going to see as you go through the book of Exodus where, God, where Moses goes back to God and says, God, don't you remember when you promised this to the people? Don't pour your wrath out of them. I know that they deserve it. I know that they are wicked. I know they've made these mistakes. But God, don't do that. Remember you promised this. Remember you said you would do this. And so Moses serves as this really good mediator representing God to the people and representing the people to God as well. And that's what we see here even in our passage. Um, 
If you look on in verse 19 of chapter 20 in our passage, I want to focus on some words that are being said there. It says, and, and, and God said this to Moses, or I'm sorry, the people said this to Moses. You speak to us and we will, what's the next word? Listen. Okay. So when they say that, the word listen in Hebrew is the same word obey. So they are, when they say we will listen, they're saying, hey, you just go and, and you let God speak to you. And then you just come back and tell us what he said, and we'll obey whatever it is. That's what they're saying. So the first thing I want to highlight is this. There is this biblical understanding that listening is connected to obedience. So in other words, to listen is to obey. We say this with our kids. It's not foreign to our understanding as well. We say, are you listening to me? And when we say that, we're not saying, did you even hear what I said? What we're saying is... Do you understand that what I just said carries with it an authority? Okay. In other words, it's not an option of if you want to do this, you can. No, I've asked you to do this. Are you listening to what I'm telling you? You know, it's not just hearing. Listening is the idea of hearing and obeying. It reminds me of a parable that Jesus told when he talked about a wise man and a foolish man. And he said the wise man is like a man who builds his house on the rock. He says the wise man is the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. And he says, a foolish man is the man who hears these words of mine but does not put them into practice. Do you see that? Obedience is synonymous with truly listening to God. Not just hearing him, but listening, obeying, acting it out, letting it become the standard of how you live. This is what Jesus was talking about, and really this is what the ten words are about. These aren't ten suggestions. This is exactly what God says. This is the way I've created the world to work, and this is how you should live. God speaks to us in so many different ways. Obviously, in our passage here, we have this demonstration of God speaking audibly to people, but God speaks to us today in many different ways. Probably less so do we hear him audibly, and more so do we hear him, in, and I've come up with three kind of umbrella kind of ways. One of them is God speaks to us through his word, which is one thing that they didn't really have back then. Remember, Moses writes the first five books of the Bible. Really, all they had during that time was oral tradition. In other words, the stories that have been passed down from generation to generation. They didn't have a holy book to study. This is really the beginnings of it right here that we're learning and reading about. So now we have something they didn't. So God speaks to us through his word. That's why when we come here on Sundays, we should expect to hear from God. Not to come and just study a history book or to learn a theology lesson, but to truly hear from God. These words are divine. They are living. They are active. They can speak to us directly. Which brings me to the second way that we hear God speak to us, and that is through his Holy Spirit. Now, you can't really disconnect this one from the first one because even as we study the Word of God, we don't completely understand it without the help of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reveals truth. The Holy Spirit takes us to deeper truth when we're ready for that. The Holy Spirit gives us under understanding and insight into the Word of God. The Holy Spirit even is the catalyst for us to live out the word of God in a very specific way. So in other words, when I study scripture, it never tells me personally what to do. It gives me a general understanding of who God is and how I should see life, but it never says, 
Jack, by the way, that problem you're having with your neighbor, here's how you should handle it. Okay? It doesn't speak to that. But that is what the Holy Spirit does. It takes this general idea of who God is and, and the ways that God wants me to live. And the Holy Spirit says, now, this is how it should be lived out in this situation, in this relationship, in this context, in this job, whatever it may be. And so the Holy Spirit gives life and breath to God's word. And the third one that I would put in with that as well is the community of God, the people of God. And the way we experience God speaking to us through that is like through accountability, uh, through discipleship. So in other words, maybe I'm living this life and someone comes to me and says, Jack, what you're doing over here doesn't seem to match up with what God's word says over here. And so they're bringing accountability. So I go back and look at God's word and I kind of reflect on it in my actions and I either come to the point of, Yes, they're right. I'm not living up according to this, and I repent of that, and I change my ways. Or maybe they're wrong. You don't ever know, because sometimes people see things from their own perspective. They see it from their own background, maybe their own denominational upbringing. And you still have to go back to the Word of God, back to the Holy Spirit. So they all kind of work together. But in all of those ways, God continues to speak to us today. God even uses his law to continue to speak to us about who he is. But there's one aspect of the law that we need to really understand, and that is this. The law can only condemn us. Okay? The law cannot set us free. The law cannot make us right with God. All it does is condemn us. If you think about it, the only purpose the law serves is to show us that we're guilty, that we're the guilty ones, that we've broken it. The, the law is powerless to save anyone, and it's really not its purpose. The law doesn't serve, the law's not even there to set anybody free, and it's not even there to condemn anyone. It's just there as the standard. We condemn ourselves, and we know that we're condemned because we compare our life to the law and realize we don't match up. The law is just a bar that's been set and saying this is who God is, and this is what God expects. But when we look at that and we reflect on our own life, that's when we find that we fall greatly short of that bar. Now, here's one thing I want you to see. Look ahead in this chapter, chapter 20. Okay? Look at that very next section and look at the heading of it. What does it say? Laws about what? Altars. Yeah, laws about altars. I want you to see that because that's what's coming next. Why? Here's what you have to understand. Law and altars are directly connected in Scripture. And I want you to understand that God understands that. Why? Because the law necessitates an altar. Now, this is powerful. Here's why. Because in this passage... Before the people have ever had an opportunity to really break these commandments, God goes ahead and gives them instructions on how to construct an altar that will have to be an altar for sacrifices. Why? Because before God ever gives them the law, he already knows they're not going to be able to keep it. The altar was not a second thought. It wasn't a thought after they messed up over and over again, like, wow, they're really not going to be able to keep this standard. I need to come up with another way that they can be forgiven of this. No, God knew that from the beginning. Why? Because that's the purpose that the law serves. It serves the purpose of showing us what we are already. And the altar is connected because it shows us what God wants us to be. He wants us to draw closer. He wants us to have an opportunity to be forgiven, to be made right. So the law sets the bar 
And the altar provides a way of forgiveness for those who can't meet the obligations or they can't meet the standard of that bar. This is why sacrifice was so central to Israel's worship. You think about that. Israel's worship was not centered around the Levitical choir and singing praises. That was a part of worship, but it wasn't central to it. Also central to it was not the teaching of God's word. Matter of fact, that happened usually in synagogues or out in the tribes. Uh, Rarely did that actually happen in the temple. You know what's central to the worship of Yahweh, central to Israel's experience of worship? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Why? Because where the very presence of God was in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, and then in the temple, in the promised land when it was a, uh, a, a permanent structure, where God's presence was in the Holy of Holies, you could not get to without passing the altar of sacrifice. The only way to approach God was through an altar, through sacrifice, through the mitigation of our sinful ways, of our character, of who we are, of our depravity. And so, we cannot separate laws and altars in Scripture. What's so amazing about this is that God provides a way to be forgiven before the commands are even broken. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of God's mercy. It's a picture of His grace. There's even something else here. There is a perspective that I think has has a lot of great application for us today. Notice that before this event, God was always at a distance. Now, in this event, he has come close to them. Now, what I mean by he was always distant was they experienced the miracles of the ten plagues, but it wasn't God coming to them directly. They just heard about it. And they were like, how did that happen? How how was Pharaoh defeated? How was the land of Egypt filled with frogs? And they said, well, Moses said that God told him he was going to do that to show his power over the Egyptian gods. And they celebrated They celebrated the results of that, right? And they even come to the Red Sea, and they're like, what are we going to do now? And and Moses comes up there and holds up his arm. God didn't show up in any physical form, but all of a sudden, God, through Moses, demonstrates his power, and they experience it. So they experience the blessing of God favoring them. They experience the blessing of his miracles in that moment, but God was still far off to them. He was the person behind everything that they saw, but he was not physically there in, in any way, any demonstrable way. So they got used to this. Think about this for a moment. They liked God working in the background. You see that? Leaving food for them during the nights. When they wake up, there it was on the ground in the morning. Water coming from a rock, even though they can't explain it. Wow, that's a miracle. God must have done this. God provided miraculously through Moses, through Aaron. They love the miracles that could only be explained by God. But... That's also the way they wanted it to stay. God as an explanation of what was happening around them. God removed in the background. In the background of their lives. Hey God, when we need you, we'll call you. It's a lot of the ways that we want to continue to relate to God today. We like the idea of God being behind the blessings that we experience. Oh, look at that. God must have blessed us with it. Oh, look how God came through. You know, I prayed this prayer, and look, this happened right here. God must have shown up in some way. But what about the personal experience? What about the awe? 
What about the worship because we experience something that's deeper than ourselves, something deeper than even eternity itself? I love this passage in John chapter 3, verse 19. This is John speaking, opening up his gospel, and he's talking about Jesus coming into the world. Listen to the language that he uses. And this is the judgment. In other words, this is what happened when Jesus came into the world. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. God came close, and the people withdrew. They didn't like it. It showed them too much of who they were. They ran away from it. They backed away. Do you see that's kind of the human condition? It's part of what's wrong with us and our perspective of God and things that are holy. We acknowledge God as the creator of life. We would even say God is the author of life. But we get nervous when he steps into that life and wants to start rearranging some things, don't we? We will sing of God as the creator of all that there is. You are the creator of the sun, the moon, and the stars, the mountains, and I enjoy the majesty. I can see your fingerprint in all of that. But then all of a sudden we get nervous when the ground begins to shake under our feet, when the mountains begin to fall apart, and when we can't see the celestial beings in the sky. Our lives are very, very temporary. Scripture says that. It keeps warning us over and over again. Don't lay up your treasures here. You're only here for a short time. Over and over again, it says your life is but a a wisp of air, a vapor. You're here today, gone tomorrow. Don't don't put stock in this world, this life. We don't like that. We don't like that because we can see this life and we don't understand the life that is to come. We understand the 80 years that we may or may not have here. And we don't understand the eternity that sits on the other side of that that never ends. We understand face to face and God at a distance here. But what will that be like when we see him face to face and exist in his presence in a place that the scripture says has no celestial beings because light is there emanating from God himself. We don't talk about that a whole lot. Let's just talk about where we are right here, right now. Our lives are temporary. Not only that, our families are temporary. And we've all begun to experience that when we lose loved ones. Whether it's our parents or whether it's our children, God forbid. Or whether it's a sibling or some extended family member. In those moments when we sit at those funerals and we realize that we'll never speak to that person again on this earth, we begin to realize how temporary life is. But you know what we do when we come to those times? We back off. We run away. We become distant. Why? Because it seems like this darkness shrouds those events. And surely God can't be in that darkness. Therefore, we run away from it. Look at this verse again from our text and tell me if you can relate to this. Exodus 20, 21. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now, we need to appropriate the meaning of this symbol because it's very important for us to understand this from this biblical perspective. But it's precisely the description of Israel's history they, they worship God from a distance, and that was always their problem. And you know what? It really is our own problem. 
we also worship God from a distance a lot of times. We come to this place and we hear the things that are taught, we sing the songs, but does it ever really have that impact where we know him, where we experience him in this real life-altering kind of way? The scripture says the darkness is where God was. The very thing that the people were shrinking away from is the very thing that had called them out of their darkness in Egypt. Have you ever noticed that people often use the darkness of this life, of this world, to come up with reasons of why there is no God? People will look through the world and they'll say, look at all the evil in the world. There's no God. If there was a God, there wouldn't all this evil exist. He would do something about it. They look around, they say, well, you know, look at all the death. Look at all the sickness and disease. Surely there's not a God, because if a God was powerful, and he was all-powerful being, and he could step into this, and he really loved us, he wouldn't allow all of this sickness and this death to come into the world. Even beyond that, you know, people look at the world and say, there's no way there's a God. Look at all the injustices. Look at the injustices in that country, on that continent. Look at the starvation. Look at the poverty. If there was a God, we wouldn't see all of these things. But I'll tell you this. I say, look at the tabernacle. Look at the temple where the very presence of God existed. Right outside of that was death. Death of the animals that became the sacrifices for the people, the mitigation of their sins. Beyond that, I would say, look at the cross. I mean, it's the epitome of God coming and visiting with us, and yet the cross is a picture of death. It's a picture of evil having its way. It's a picture of the finished work of death, the finished work of sin. It is an injustice all in one event. And darkness even fell over it, the Gospels tell us. And yet God was there in the midst of it, hanging on that cross. Look at the tomb. The tomb. Maybe that's the epitome of darkness. The final result of death, lifelessness, put into the ground, sealed with a stone. And yet, there was God in the midst of it. The reason we never see God in the darkness is because oftentimes we're too scared to press into it. We don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. And we think to ourselves and even convince ourselves, there's no way God is in that anywhere. And so we distance ourselves from it. You know, for us, darkness shows up in a much more personal way. Sometimes it's depression. Sometimes it may be divorce. Sometimes it may be shattered relationships that we have, either with our loved ones, our kids, or our siblings, or family members, even parents. Sometimes it may be wayward children that are so far from the Lord, although we've invested and prayed with them, and yet they're chasing after the things of this world, and we just can't figure it out. It's like this darkness sets in over us. It could be as simple as an unfulfilled job, a job that just seems so dead end, and you're thinking, God, surely you have something more in life than this. Maybe it's the unexpected death of a loved one. It came out of nowhere. And then all of a sudden, we're face to face with the idea of eternity. You see, in all of these instances, it's an often temptation to stand way off 
And when we do, ultimately we're standing way off from where God is. In our life, and our experiences, we wail, we become very emotional. Maybe even at times we get very angry. You know, as I think about this, as I was really thinking about this morning, it reminded me of an event that happened in the New Testament. Just right before the crucifixion, after Jesus leaves the garden, he's been arrested, but he hasn't yet been turned over to Pilate. He's been questioned and accused by the religious leaders. And you remember Peter, after everything that happened in Garden of Gethsemane, um, Peter was following Jesus. Now, this is where this passage comes from. And Jesus is speaking at this moment. Okay? He's speaking to that, that council, the Sanhedrin, before they go and turn him over to Pilate. This is what he says, Luke 22, verse 53. And it's not going to be on here because I literally kind of connected this right before teaching this morning. So I kind of put it into my notes, but it's not going to be on there. So if you want to see it, you'll have to turn over in your scripture. It's Luke chapter 22, or you can just listen to, listen to me read it. Verse 53 says this. Jesus says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus says at that moment, darkness has come into the situation. Where is Jesus though? He's in the midst of that darkness. But look at the very next line. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was, what does it say? Following at a distance. Do you remember Peter's situation? He couldn't understand what was going on. I mean, his idea was Jesus came to be this, this military ruler to overthrow the Romans, to, to give the land back to the people that it belonged to. Isn't that who the Messiah is? Isn't that what he's supposed to be? And so Peter's having problems understanding this. And because he doesn't understand it, this darkness begins to set in. And God is in the middle of it. But Peter gets further and further back from it. Why? He doesn't understand it. And because of that, we know how the story goes. Peter ends up denying Jesus three times. Why? He doesn't understand. Can't contemplate the events that are happening right in front of him. You see, when we walk through great difficulty and adversity, we assume that we will have to tread through that darkness alone somehow. And that's a very scary opportunity, option, sentence. The truth is, though, if you press into the darkness, you'll find that God's there in the midst of it. He always is. He's right in the middle of it. In the middle of that fear, in the middle of that doubt, if you press into it, you'll find God's there. Today is a sad memorial for, for me, for many others, some of you know. Um, today is the day that a good friend of mine, her name was Nikki, uh, she passed away uh, just a couple years back. If you don't know Nikki's story, Nikki was a godly woman, uh, married, had, had three, had, she had two beautiful kids and was pregnant with her third. And um, she got the diagnosis that she had breast cancer stage four. She was pregnant at the time, already well into the pregnancy. And she was faced with decisions that she had to make. And being at stage four of her cancer, she said, I'm going to go ahead and see this, this birth out. I'm not going to take the drugs and the chemotherapy because I don't know if that's going to impact the baby or not. 
And so she decided, I'm going to take that route, and I'm going to leave this in God's hands. And she miraculously just, I mean, everything, just eating right and trying to take the supplements and all that kind of thing. She, she lasted, and her, her baby girl was born on January 1st. And then within a month, she passed away. When she died, a light that seemed so bright was put out. This was a girl who, in this very community, she was a member of this church, this congregation right here. This was a lady that um, she ministered to girls throughout this community. She was a discipler of young women, telling them where to find their importance and where to find their dignity was in their relationship with God, not in a relationship with a man or a boy. She kept pointing them to the things that were valuable and meaningful. She was a great mother. And today is the day that her journey ended here. Let me just tell you something. I was in the hospital room when the doctor came in and said, I'm sorry, there's nothing else we can do. After she gave birth to the baby, she tried the chemotherapy and other, other ways of trying to mitigate the advance of the cancer. But they gave her the strongest chemotherapy that they could possibly give her, and her cancer grew in the face of it. And that's when the doctor came in and said, We've tried everything we know to try. There's nothing else we can do. And it was within 24 hours she passed away. Let me tell you something. Never did I see her ever tremble in the face of what was in front of her. I saw this woman strong as ever deliver a baby and then face the inevitable coming after that with joy in her heart sharing Jesus with everybody who came into her hospital room, impacting nurse after nurse after nurse and doctor after doctor. But let me tell you, for her friends and family, when that death came, it was like a darkness set in. Why? Of all the people in the world who don't even want to live, of all the people in the world who, who live their lives, throw it away and waste it, why, why this life and not those if somebody has to die? And what happens is you'll only get those answers if you press into the darkness. Why? Because somewhere in that darkness, God is. God's there. I love how one author said it. In the darkness of death, God is. Tremble and quake as we might at the darkness. We stride on in confidence knowing that in the dark as in the light, God was and is and underneath us are his everlasting arms. He carries us through those dark times. What do people do when they get in trouble with the law? And what, do you, what, what, what would you do? You get in trouble with the law, you get pulled over for something, or you get caught in something, or your taxes weren't done right, and you get in trouble with the law, what are you going to do? You're going to find a lawyer, aren't you? And what does that lawyer do? That lawyer becomes a mediator between you and the law. Because the law demands this, but you haven't lived up to that. So the, the lawyer comes and says, hey, here, here's the problem. Here's, here's where you've missed it. Here, here's where you've missed the mark, and this is where you need to straighten your path. But then the lawyer goes and advocates on your behalf. He didn't understand this. He didn't know this. Here, here's why, and here's what he's willing to do. And so he's the person who goes between. He's the mediator between that. He's the one that helps us make sense of the law. Uh, a lawyer is basically a bilateral representative. He represents both parties to each other. Just as the people of Israel needed a mediator, needed a lawyer, Moses, hey, you press in and you tell us what this means, so do we today need a lawyer. We need a mediator. And you know what's amazing? 
is we have a greater mediator than Moses ever was. Because in our passage, what you're going to find is that Moses does become the mediator and the people shrink back from God and they never, ever fully understand God. You know why? Because Moses does go into the darkness, but he never invites the people in there. You know why? Because there was no mitigation for their sins at that time that could take care of all of them. But we have a better Moses because through Jesus Christ, not only do we have someone who would press into the darkness of death for us, but then he says, I want you to come and understand God in a deeper way. I invite you into his presence. So much so that in the Old Testament, there's fear and trembling in the presence of God. The book of Hebrews says, let us approach the throne of God with confidence. Why? Because we do it through Christ Jesus, the greatest mediator we've ever had. Jesus became our mediator when he walked into the darkness of rejection, of false attacks, false accusations, failed expectations, collapse of personal dreams, and ultimately death. He walked into that darkness for us. But even beyond that, he makes this promise to us, Matthew 28, 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus promises that I'm never going to leave you alone. Yes, there's going to be dark times. Yes, there's going to be difficulty. As you go and do the things that I'm calling you to do, to teach and disciple and to baptize, you're going to run into all kinds of adversity. You're going to find yourself in prison. You're going to find yourself stoned. You're going to find yourself shipwrecked. There's going to be all kinds of darkness that clouds your circumstances of life. But remember this, I am with you always. I'm never going to leave you alone in that darkness. So press in to the darkness, and you'll find those answers. You'll find that God is there in the midst of difficult circumstances. There's no reason to fear. Matter of fact, over and over again in the New Testament, fear not, fear not, fear not. Why? Why should we fear not when we should have feared here? Because we have been taken care of by the greatest mediator that God has ever sent, Jesus Christ. God himself came in the flesh, became our advocate. He represents the law to us. He says, this is the way that you should live. But then he turns around and says, this person is completely redeemed, has fulfilled the law because I've given them my righteousness. I've already paid the penalty. I've died the death. I've bled the blood. They are redeemed. What? A mediator. One who pressed into the darkness when we were unwilling to go. And then he comes back and says, there's no darkness you should ever fear again. Wow. And you know one of the beautiful things that we have that represents that is the Lord's Supper. Underneath your chair, you're going to find the elements for that. I want to go ahead and have you take that out. Jesus, remember when he instituted the Lord's Supper, it was actually in a Passover meal. And they were going through the traditional Passover meal. The, the bread is the afikoman, the, the juice, the wine is um, the third cup of redemption. Okay, the third cup, which is called the cup of redemption. And when Jesus came to these elements that are actually simultaneously consumed in a Passover meal, Jesus brought new significance to them. Go ahead and open that up and take out the wafer. When Jesus came to the afikoman, which is something that is hidden away, wrapped in linen, and then found later and redeemed, Jesus, as he unwrapped it from the linen napkin, said, This is my body, which is broken for you. 
Now, if you've ever experienced a Passover meal, you know that this afikoman came from the middle piece of the matzotosh, which at the very beginning of Passover was actually broken in half. That broken in half piece was wrapped in linen and hidden away. And at this point of the Passover, it is found redeemed by whoever is the head of the table in a Passover meal, it would be a father. So the father redeems it, he unwraps it, and he passes it around. And the Jewish tradition at Passover is the afikoman has to be completely consumed. You can't have any left over. So Jesus says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he breaks off a piece and he hands it off. And then Peter breaks off a piece and he hands it to Andrew. And Andrew breaks off a piece and he hands it to Thomas. And they pass it around to all 12 disciples until they have completely consumed this. And then they took it and they ate it. And he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take it and eat it and remember me. Also, right after that, they would go around and pour a glass of wine for everyone. And this was the third cup in the four cup tradition. The third cup was a picture of redemption. It was called the cup of redemption. All of the cups, the four cups of wine, speak to one of the I will statements in Exodus chapter 6. We talked about that earlier, if you remember. But this one speaks specifically to the promise that says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Now think, moments away from this, Jesus is going to have his arms outstretched and in this perfect picture of, of redemption on the cross. And he says, this represents the blood of the new covenant, the blood that I'm going to shed for you. I want you to take it and drink it and remember my pain. Drink the cup of redemption. In this, we have just celebrated something that is shrouded in darkness in the time that it was taking place. Think about this. They were moments away from Jesus being arrested, moments away from Peter's denial. They, Judas has already left to betray Jesus. Darkness is beginning to set in, and it would be heavy and thick when the crucifixion comes. Yet in the middle of all of that, God knew it was coming. God foreordained it, and God said, I am in the middle of it. I don't know what your darkness is today. It could be a darkness of depression. It could be a darkness of divorce could be a darkness of broken relationship, wayward children, all those things that we named earlier. Or it may be something I can't even imagine, can't even name up here. But you know what it is because you're walking through it. You're experiencing it. I just want to remind you that God invites us to press into the darkness, not to run away from it. Because in the darkness, what we will begin to find is that God never leaves us nor forsakes us that he's faithful to all of his promises, he's loving towards all that he has made, and he will never, ever leave you alone. He is close to the brokenhearted. Press into your darkness, and you will find the very presence and awe of God. Amen? Let's pray. God, may you be lifted up and glorified in all things. Lord, even as we have partaken in this incredible gift to us, this picture of redemption, this picture of your intentionality of bringing salvation through your sacrifice. Before it ever even happens, Lord, you said, this is what you've come to do. This is how you're going to fulfill God's will. And yet for us, it seems so far off. It seems greater sense to get on a horse and have a sword and defeat the army. And yet you went the other way. You succumbed to the army. You succumbed to the accusations. You succumbed to the cross, the ridicule, and ultimately the death. 
But then you became the victor of all of those things, opening up our way to walk through death as well, to know that death is not the end. It's not the period of our life. It's just a comma to say what is to come. Lord, thank you for a way that begins to make sense of the darkness and tragedy that we experience, one of them, of the many. Lord, I pray that today as your word has been taught, may you receive the honor and the glory that is due to you through the teaching of your word. I pray that those who are wise will hear these words and put them into practice. And Lord, may we reap the benefits of knowing who you are and may it give us confidence as we approach your throne, even in the darkest of times. We ask all of this in the name that's above every name and the name that has made this possible, the name of Jesus.